You're listening to Because of Bitcoin, a podcast that shares the personal stories of how Bitcoin is having a real impact in people's lives, including mine. I'm your host, Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, the co-founder and CSO of Ledin. And without further ado, let's get started with today's story. So it was December 9th of 2017. I had a mining facility, like a small mining facility in one of my, my friend's parents' warehouse in, in like downtown. I was on, on the way with Jonathan to install more machines that had arrived via door-to-door service. Like it was a, This we is my brother, there, Daniel. He and his friend, Jonathan, were living in our hometown of Barquisimeto in Venezuela at this time. Daniel had 17 Bitcoin mining computers at a downtown warehouse, and he had about 120 other machines at locations throughout the city. And we, we drove around the place and we saw um, the National Guard or, or the People's Guard, which was a, a little bit more chavistic body of um, National Guard. Um, and they, they were inspecting the place down below my, mine. What Danny didn't know was that the National Guard was raiding another tenant at the warehouse because this other tenant has stockpiled 3,000 kilograms of soap and a really big amount of plastic chairs and buckets that he had purchased to sell for scraps in Colombia. Venezuela was suffering from extreme hyperinflation at the time, and the Maduro regime was doing everything it could to hide it. When governments try to hide or deny inflation by creating subsidies, they cause all sorts of issues in the economy. Anti-inflation subsidies in Venezuela made finished plastic chairs cheaper than scrap plastic in Colombia. People, of course, started buying chairs in Venezuela to ship them across the border, sell them as scraps, and pocket the difference. A finished chair in one country was cheaper than the inputs to make the same chair in another country, all because of subsidies. Because of these broken subsidies, the Maduro regime outlawed stockpiling any subsidized items that could be resold. So when they 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 raided him, they we had a door that communicated uh, our 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 businesses, and it was locked by the two sides. So in order to get leniency, he said like I've heard the the beeps of the machines of this guy, so I'm pretty sure he has machines. I'll let you knock it down if you if you if you just like let me go or or give me a, a lesser punishment. Seeing the quote-unquote authorities kept Daniel and Jonathan from going into the warehouse. And while they left the area, a SWAT-looking team was knocking down the door to his mining operation. And, and I got a call from my, my, my friend's father's secretary saying we had like five different authorities and bodies in there and uh, that, that, that they wanted to speak to me. I said I was an hour and a half away, which I... I, I was I was pretty close to to the business. I was like uh, ten minutes away, but I said I was like an hour and a half away, and that I would try to like go as fast as possible, but that they should wait for me. Once they broke down the door, they immediately started going through private files on personal computers and inspecting all of the mining equipment. We we, we did a tour around the place uh, anonymously to see, and then we saw authorities with like large weapons and assault weapons in front of the place, and we said this is they, they don't want to talk. 
we had a remote access to the computer and we saw what they were doing uh, with the files and the and the machines. I managed to access the computer and I could see how the the state security forces are, were taking and filing the personal information of Daniels and his family. I immediately told them the to prevent him from showing up at the site, I mean at the facility, because it was clear that this was not going to be a normal process. Hours later, uh, they had already uninstalled all the miners and they already had uh, all the equipment under their control. That's the voice of Daniel's friend, Jonathan. These machines had been confiscated but Daniel and Jonathan knew that the other mining machines around the city would be targeted next. It was only a matter of time before they start asking uh, for, for search warranties uh, on places that were Daniel's or his family's name. So it was a matter of time that they will find uh, all the other miners. We, we said there was no negotiation possible, and that's when everything, like the, the, the escape plan started. I grew up with Daniel and the rest of my family in the small city of Barquisimeto, which is literally in the center of Venezuela. We enjoyed our childhood during the 1990s, and now we look back at them as the good old days. Uh, we, we were lucky to live, to grow up during like the Venezuelan boom, where there was no political conflict at that time. It was a, it was a land of opportunities and investment. Everybody, like foreign companies came in and, uh, and went, went out as they pleased. But as Danny and I started in high school, Hugo Chavez, an ex-military member, won the presidential election in 1998. This was seven years after he led a second failed attempt to overthrow the government by force in 1992. My parents kind of saw the writing on the wall. They knew that Chavez had misrepresented his agenda to the public. And not just us, but many other families chose to try their luck in a different part of the world, at least while we waited to see what would unfold in Venezuela. So in the spring of 1999, our family moved to Miami, Florida. We, we had no clue that we were going to stay for like a, a couple of years. We, we thought we were going for a summer. Our time in Miami lasted longer than one summer, but it did have many benefits. We went to a school that was one of the first to replace notebooks with laptops for every student. Our English skills improved and we avoided what was happening under Chavez. But as we entered our second year in Miami, our dad started having challenges with running his business from abroad, and we had to return home to Venezuela. And things at home were quickly getting worse. Over the next 10 years, Chavez kept getting more and more authoritarian. He started to dismantle Venezuela's democratic institutions and kept gaining more and more power. He rewrote the constitution, changed the name of the country, changed the flag, the coat of arms, the time zone, dismantled the electoral system, allowed for infinite re-elections of a candidate. And since his party has been in power, Venezuela has wiped out 14 zeros from its currency, meaning that one Bolivar today was one trillion Bolivares 20 years ago. Hyperinflation creates a world of issues. For one, cash becomes worthless. The highest denomination bill in Venezuela was at times worth just one dollar. 
That means that to pay for a $100 good, you had to bring a literal duffel bag of cash. Electronic means of payments also have limits that become obsolete within days during hyperinflation. Credit card limits could be the equivalent of $10. Max transfer amounts between banks were sometimes in the hundreds of dollars. It made it impossible for businesses and people to transact. During hyperinflation, Venezuelans had to work two jobs. The normal one, which gets them the paycheck, and then they had to rush to convert the monthly paycheck as soon as they got it. Otherwise, it could become worthless within hours. In 2003, I moved to Canada to attend university, and in 2005, Danny moved to Vienna. We both visited Venezuela often and spent our summers there. But in March 2013, shortly after winning his fourth presidential election, Chavez died. So Danny and I returned back home in April 2013 to vote in a new election, and we believe that this was a chance to take our country back. I, I distinctly remember selling all of my assets that I had accumulated at the time in Canada, shipping them all in a container, and getting on a plane, plane with my wife to fly down to vote in that election. And I remember when the plane landed, everybody was wearing their freedom hats, like the, the freedom caps, the, the Venezuelan flag, and they started chanting the Venezuelan anthem on the plane. You could just sense it in the air, like we were about to get it back. And that was what we all were investing so heavily to do. We bought tickets that were thousands of dollars just to exercise our right to vote. I resigned from the job I, I had in, in Vienna in March when they declared that Chavez had died. And I, and I said we were moving back in September because the elections were in October. But the election was rigged. Nicolás Maduro, the vice president under Chavez, was announced as the winner by a controversial 1.5% of the votes. He didn't allow for a recount and all sorts of election rules were violated. And with that, the country was stolen from us again. I think we, we in the previous ones, we, we hoped for a, for a nice result, but we hoped for this one. We, we already thought there was a, a change coming. So um, it was one of the, the biggest disappointments. I distinctly remember the weeks after and, and sort of the, the collective gasp that all of my friends had. The conversations went from, where are we buying our house in Venezuela? What factory are we going to build? And the conversation shifted almost instantly to how much can I get for all the assets that I have left? I'm clearing out everything and I'm looking for places to live. Uh, I'm considering options ranging from the US to Patagonia and Argentina. And I distinctly remember, at least amongst my circle of friends, that that election kicked off the mass exodus that is you know, historical. So to, just for those who don't have the context, the Venezuelan immigration crisis is the worst migration crisis in the history of the Americas, continental Americas. Like over 25% of the country has now is not lives outside of the country. That's almost 7 million Venezuelans that have left since the election. When everybody started, started selling their assets and when everybody started looking for the door out, I think this was around the time when inflation starts turning into hyperinflation and the monetary system starts going off the rails. Under Maduro, hyperinflation went to record levels. After the election, my wife and I returned to Canada, but Daniel and his wife stayed in Barquisimeto and opened a radiology business. And it wasn't long before they started to feel the effects of a broken monetary system. 
But I mean, we, we met every single Friday to like determine the prices we were gonna set up for Monday. We were used to, I don't know, 20% yearly inflation, maybe 30, 40. But you weren't used to like not being able to repurchase if you didn't change your prices weekly. So, uh, and then, then everybody just like, when you got a handful of Bolivars, you, you didn't even think of, of new, next opportunities. You thought of like, who can sell me a dollar? And then the, there was also the variable of the currency exchange control. So maybe you, you, were, you had access to products with the fixed rate, fixed exchange rate by the government. It's like a, like a dog's life. You, you see food and then you don't know when you're gonna see food again. You saw uh, a, a cheap x-ray material, but then the seller, the, the salesman also always told you like, um, this could be the last sale at this price. Like, so I have 20 boxes, do you want them all? The Chavez and Maduro regimes struggled to collect taxes. Everybody did whatever they could not to pay taxes because everyone that had a capacity to pay them, including businesses, were being assaulted by unfair regulations. I, like many, had a hard time understanding how a government that doesn't have any tax revenue and blows all of its oil money on subsidies could keep the lights on. But then it clicked. They printed. When a government prints currency, it increases the money supply and dilutes the value of the currency. When this happens, the price of all assets skyrockets and everything in the economy breaks down. The end result of printing currency is a massive growth of the wealth gap between those that have assets and those that get handouts. And it was in this dire economic environment that Daniel found Bitcoin. We, we were introduced by our younger brother who had a friend in Texas or he recommended him to buy a machine and he bought uh, six or eight machines and then we had to install them in, 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 in different places because they made lots, lots of noise. So I started helping him with, you know, the commercial premises I had. So when I saw the first sales, I said like that we need to get into this. And I started copying the model. Mining Bitcoin was not illegal in Venezuela at the time. It was unregulated. Energy was subsidized in Venezuela. So the cost to mine was low compared to other countries. When I returned from Canada in 2015 to visit, Daniel showed me what he had built. And I knew this was how our family could earn a living in spite of the hyperinflation that was crippling the country. I distinctly remember people coming to us for help and guidance. It was almost like exciting when somebody came and asked us about it because we basically were like, let us show you the light. Leading up to around the time that Maduro announced a government-issued cryptocurrency called the Petro, the authorities started searching for Bitcoin mines. I am of the view that the Petro was an education campaign for extortionists. It was in no way intended to ever be a currency. To me, it was essentially a roadshow to inform the cronies that there were some people out there earning money by mining Bitcoin. They were actually patrolling the streets at night like in, in lonely streets, just to see if they heard the beeps of the machines and, and then try to detect them with like acute, you know, hearing and then trying to, to go after them. Fake utility reps would come knocking on doors, wanting to find out about electricity consumption. And then days later, they would raid the premises. Reports of miners getting arrested, even though Bitcoin mining was not illegal, started making their way around the mining community. 
So when his downtown warehouse got raided, Daniel made a choice that would change his life forever. First thing we did was like everybody, everybody split, right? Like Jonathan went into um, hiding and like changed, like bought another SIM card and like deleted all the WhatsApp conversation, and everything. And we, we went into blackout mode. So we went to a relative's place and we, we packed clothes and like all of the passports and, and packed clothes for like a week or something. We, 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 said, we said like, maybe we'll spend some days in Colombia and then we'll come back. It was difficult to find gas at that time. So we, we had to like uh, resort to friends to like give us uh, some uh, uh, containers with gas uh, to get to the border because it was, uh, I don't know, 600 miles or something, maybe. Tried to went, go into hiding until like three or four in the morning. Uh, started our journey to, to Colombia and then by midday we were already on the other side. With Daniel safe in Colombia, Jonathan bravely stayed in Barquisimeto. I remember uh, next day I dedicated myself to, uh, to take down all the farms we had since the hunt has begun and it was only a matter of time before they start asking for search warranties uh, on places that were Daniel's on his family's name. So it was a matter of time that they will find uh, all the other miners. What I remember from that time is that even though the machines had been compromised, they couldn't touch the Bitcoin because they couldn't get access to the wallets. And even though they were able to take our machines, they were never able to touch the actual Bitcoin. And I think it was that ease of transport of the Bitcoin itself that allowed us to port a lot of the wealth that we had built at the time out of the country because a lot of it had been now funneled into Bitcoin over the last few years. We, interestingly, we all ended up leaving and going to different places. Danny spent some time in Colombia, but eventually moved to Spain where he started a Bitcoin brokerage in Madrid. When Danny's mining operation was seized, I was living in Canada. Bitcoin had become my life, and I convinced my university friend, Adam, to start a mining business with me. As it grew, we started meeting with banks and entities to get financing to expand our mine, but we kept getting laughed out of the room. The banks didn't see Bitcoin as an asset and wouldn't give us loans to buy more mining equipment. Eventually, Adam and I looked at each other and realized that this was a huge opportunity. If we could create a business in Canada that helped Bitcoin miners get loans by using their Bitcoin as collateral, we could take this business global. So Ledin was started in 2018 as a way to provide Bitcoin-backed loans so people didn't have to sell their Bitcoin. And things came full circle when Danny joined the Ledin team as employee number seven in 2020. And two years later, Jonathan joined our team as well. After going through this experience, Danny shared how Bitcoin has changed his life. It's, a, it's how they say, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a trying-to-not-get-poor-quick scheme, right? It's, a, it's a preserving value, preserving your wealth for future generations, which is something our, our parents or our grandparents were maybe able to do, but, but our generation hadn't had the opportunity because not even brick and mortar in Venezuela w would allow you to do that, in that at this exact time. I can't express the courage that it takes to do what Danny and Jonathan did. Packing a bag to drive across the border for nine hours with your wife and two young kids at night in the most dangerous country in the world, 
while your partner is going into your facilities that are being raided by crony forces that have no respect for any type of law. And you're doing all of this while racing against the clock. I'm thankful that they're able to share their story because it's surreal every time I hear it and get to relive the events of those days. Like many people in Venezuela, Bitcoin gave my family an opportunity to earn and save money after years of hyperinflation under Chavez and Maduro. And even when the Maduro regime tried to stop us by confiscating our mining machines, the actual Bitcoin was safe and could not be stolen from us. Bitcoin was not about getting rich for us. It was about not sinking along with an economy that was being dismantled and preserving wealth in the only way we could. Danny is a lawyer and he ran his own business with his wife, but the system in Venezuela destroyed his financial opportunities. Bitcoin was a lifeline. And what my family experienced is happening to people all over the world today. Knowing this hurts, but I believe with all my heart that Bitcoin is part of the solution replacing a monetary system that has failed them. I want to thank Danny and Jonathan so much for joining me and I want to thank you for listening. enjoyed this because of bitcoin episode i would be very grateful for the five seconds it would take you to drop us a review and give us a rating on your favorite podcasting platform this will really help us reach even more listeners and if you'd like to learn more about bitcoin be sure to check out our newsletter by subscribing at letn.io that's letn.io again this was mauricio di bartolomeo stay tuned for our next episode and until then muchas gracias y los quiero mucho chao chao